You are now listening to The Sound of Sanity, Beyond the Wardrobe Edition. This is a special series of episodes wherein Nathan and Ben journey through the enchanted world of children's fantasy literature. What will this journey bring? You'll have to come with us to find out. Ah, man, I wish I was recording with an awesome person. (laughs) I wish the same thing. Oh, man, well... Whoa! Whoa! What in the world? <laughs> I'm recording at least. I got half my wish. Yeah. Zing. Um, hey, everybody. <laughs> no. We're That's both recording. a different children's fantasy book. No. We're recording with awesome people, ourselves, and each other. There we go. My name is Nathan. That is Ben. This is Sound of Sanity, our special edition. You just heard the blurb. We're reviewing children's fantasy books. And today we are talking about Edith Nesbitt's Five Children and It's... not about stephen king's demon clown that can take any form no horror no No horror horror. elements in this book well some gypsies try to kidnap a baby at one point or something like that yeah it's horrifying it's horrifying yeah don't read this book (laughs) (laughs) that's a fun book i don't know Uh, ben i like it a lot who was edith nesbitt Edith Nesbitt, I am prepared to say a little bit about her. She was born in 1858. She died in 1924. Mm. She wrote a lot of kids' books. She wrote poetry. She wrote plays. She was influential on a lot of authors that I'm going to guess you, dear listener, already like C.S. Lewis, for instance. A lot of other people. James Patterson. James Patterson. (laughs) J.K. Rowling. Diana Wynne-Jones. Yeah. You can definitely see some ra- Rowling DNA in here. Yeah, Rowling. Just, Rowling, I'm sorry. Butcher her name. Mm-hmm. And she just had a big influence on children's fantasy. Some people would say she created modern children's fantasy. She kind of, she moved away from, let's go to a different world and have an adventure there too. Nope. Let's just be in our world. Something magical happens. These are recognizable children in a recognizable contemporary setting. And magical thing happens, but there's sure is a lot of regular life going on around that magical thing. And and nobody has to go down a rabbit hole or nope get sucked into a portal or go climb through a wardrobe. Or... Nope, and it's not a world of talking frogs and stuff like Wind in the Willows. It's just a world of kids and there's a magic thing. Actually, most of the juice, most of the enjoyment of the story comes from watching the magic interact with very prosaic, humorously prosaic right. things about our. A little bit like you you took, if people know Narnia, if people have heard of the Narnia books. One of my favorite portions as a child of the Narnia books was in Magician's Nephew when the White Witch, before she's the White Witch, ends up in our world and she's just causing havoc and running around and people are confused and there's like cab drivers that are like, blimey. This is almost like if you took and made an entire book of that kind of thing. What would happen if a little Narnia got into our <laughs> world? Well, it'd be some crazy shenanigans, I'll tell you. Anyway, go ahead. Either, either <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. So she wrote a bunch of books that we're talking about, Five Children and It Today, which is the first of a three-part series called the Samiad series. I mean, they're all standalone sort of books, but they're about the same group of children. And she wrote some other series. She wrote a series, an earlier series called the Bastable Series, 
There's a book written in 1899 called The Story of the Treasure Seekers that some of our listeners may have read. These, I have not read these. I'm pretty sure these are not fantastical. She also wrote The Railway Children. Mm. People have read that. That's not fantastical. That's kind of sort of based on her life. And she wrote some other fantasy novel stuff and this little book of stories called The Book of Dragons, which is really fun. And she's an interesting person. So I'll just talk a little bit about what she was like. And I just don't know. I'm trying to remember what I've back on what I've read because it's been a long time before doing this podcast since I read any Edith Nesbitt. Although I think I read one story of the Book of Dragons out loud to a friend in the past several years, but that's it. So I don't think that you would figure her out from reading her books. Here's what I mean. Her books are about pretty sweet children in what seem to be pretty ordinary families, upper middle class, lower upper class maybe. She, the Railway Children, of course, is about lower class kids. So she writes about different spectrums of life and family, it's clear, is very important. Mom is very important. Dad is important. You know, the, the, you're in, if you're in a household with servants like you are in this book, then the servants are important. It's kind of have, it has a sweet feeling to it, family-centered. So that is kind of who Edith Nesbitt was. She, she at, age, at age 18, she met a guy who would be her lover. She met a bank clerk named Hubert Bland. And fast forward a couple of years, she is seven months pregnant with his child. And they get married, although they don't initially live together because he's living with his mom. Who is this guy? This guy is actually, I mean, yeah, he was a bank clerk at the time, but this guy is actually like an ideologue and becomes, as time goes on, a journalist through his wife's sort of financial management of their house. Hmm. I guess that's an interesting parallel to how Baum, Frank L. Baum, if you listen to our episode discussing him and his wife, Maud, she was more the financial manager of the house and he was the entrepreneur, but this guy's a little different than Baum. This guy... Hubert Bland, he is a, if you like that name. <laughs> That's an amazing name. <laughs> yeah. He, this guy, well, okay, I guess I'm, in my mind, I'm jumping around because I, I want to tell you about several things at once, but here, let me just pull myself back. So first of all, Bland is a libertine. Mm-hmm. He's a serious libertine. He's known in society, he's remembered, if you've ever heard of him in history, which you might have done if you were researching the Fabian Society, a socialist society mm-hmm. in England, turn of the century England, that had a lot of famous members like H.G. Wells, who at one time fought Hubert Bland for control of the Fabian Society and lost. So there's all these literary elites. H.G. Wells, also a famous libertine and philanderer and adulterer. Well, Hubert Bland is that. And he and Edith Nesbitt are both socialists, and they have an open marriage, which to be fair to Edith Nesbitt, I don't think she would have wanted it, but she was clearly, she was a fool to choose him. And What Hubert Bland wants, Hubert Bland gets. Well, dude, absolutely. For instance, Nesbitt has a friend named Alice Hotson, who is the housekeeper for oh. the Blands, and guess what? Hotson is, becomes pregnant by Bland. I, she had already discovered earlier in the marriage that there was another woman saying, I'm his fiance and I'm pregnant by him. So she'd already discovered that, coming to grips with that. But then 
he gets her friend and their housekeeper pregnant. And Nesbitt doesn't like this. And her husband's like, well, if you don't like it, I'll leave you. So she adopts her friend's child as her own. Seven years later, happens again. Same lady, <laughs> living in the house still, has another. They're just lovers. It's just an open marriage. It's just really gross. And she adopts that child also. So she has three of her own and two of her friends as her own children, who she mothers. She does mother. From what I can tell, I'm judging by the fact that she dedicates books to them and they help her work on her books, that she must have been a good adoptive mother to mm -hmm. these kids. So that's sweet, and that's where kind of the warmth and motherliness of these stories comes through. That's not faked, but you would not have expected it to have come from this lady. Interesting. And she's an outspoken socialist. She's an active part of the Fabian Society with her husband. Like, that's, she's proud that he's part of this. And they're part of it, like, their whole lives. And so, I, it's, this is just, it's just weird. It's just weird. Like, who is this lady? Let me read a little paragraph, <laughs> paragraph written by George Bernard Shaw about her, Hubert Bland. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> a man of fierce Norman exterior and huge physical strength, never seen without an irreproachable frock coat tall hat, and a single eyeglass which infuriated everybody. He was pugnacious, powerful, a skilled pugilist, and had a shrill, thin voice reportedly like the scream of an eagle. Nobody dared to be uncivil to him." Unquote. And what's weird is that Bland in his own way is conservative, as well as being socialist. For instance, he and Edith Nesbitt both oppose women's suffrage. Uh, I think Bland has his own reasons for that, but for Nesbitt, it's like, well, what if they swing away from voting socialist. That's no good. You don't want to split the vote. Right. That's funny. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Uh, later on, Bland becomes a member of the Roman Catholic Church to sort of, but that's just his exterior. That's just his like, I'm a conservative values kind of guy in some sense. But throughout his whole life, he never stops being a very nasty adulterer. He dies, he dies, oh, in 1914. Edith Nisbet remarries a few years later, and then is married to that guy for seven years before she dies at age 65. And no one really remembers Bland. At the time, he became sort of a, a popular and well-known figure, a well-known journalist, kind of a wit. He sounds like he'd be a great character in like a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen type, uh, so, you know, Absolutely. Uh, supporting kind of evil aristocrat with well, white gloves. But apparently kind of people kind of loved him. Even people who should have hated him. Mm -hmm. Or he was, anyway, he was just one of those guys. Yeah. And, and she, so Edith Nesbitt, Edith Nesbitt is the one who lives on, not, not Bland. And Edith Nesbitt lives on through books like the ones we read today, where, like we talked about, you got magic, you got your kids, you got your family, you got your more or less understated moral lessons. Moral lessons, but not really in a kind of a straightforward moralizing kind of way, I would say. Right. And she also wrote some horror stories, apparently. She wrote some books for adults. I haven't read any of that. The only stuff I've read by her is her kid's stuff. Never looked at her poetry, never looked at her plays. I believe um, I am familiar with her horror stories. My favorite thing in life is to get a big omnibus of stories from that era and read them. And so I'm sure I've read Edith Nesbitt. I couldn't tell you much. I... I'm vaguely familiar with one I think called John Charrington's Wedding about a man who he and his bride swear that they will be married on such and such a date. And that promise is kept even though one of them dies. Something <laughs> like that. 
Um, I think she had a good line in the kind of uh, post-Victorian sort of spooky kind of ghost stuff. So I dare say those stories would be fun for someone who has that sort of appetite. But in any case. That's interesting. Well, so that's Edith Nesbitt. And man, what a weird, gross, awful family life she had. Of course, she's a socialist. So I don't know. Is it, would you have expected any of those things to be part of her bio? Not really. Not really. I mean, of course, socialist maybe had slightly different connotations. It did. It had not been uh, so so thoroughly tried and found wanting at that point in human That's history. So true. It was, you have a lot of anarchists at the time. You have a lot of socialists. And it, it's all sort of more— Utopianists. Utopia, yeah. There was a time of so, sort of social upheaval and lots of fancy sort of— proto-hipsters with their own ideas. And all sleeping with each other's wives as much as possible. Yes, yes. At least that's my read. Yeah, you might think of it as like California in the 1960s, you know, when you have Bob Dylan and all these people kind of revolutionizing music and revolutionizing sex politics. Mm -hmm. Or in the Romantic era when Shelley and what's-his-face, Lord Byron, like all those people Mm -hmm. were sleeping with each other and sleeping with their wives. Sometimes you'll have these eras where Young revolutionaries get together and try and talk about how the world should change. And usually the world does not change for the better. But yeah, that is really interesting. So did she have a pretty decent childhood then? Her childhood was not happy. So her dad died when she, before she turned four. Okay. He was an agricultural chemist. And her sister, Mary, was in bad health, so the family just kind of traveled all over. Mary got to be older but died of tuberculosis before she could be uh, married. And so, let's see. Let me see here. Yeah, I don't know how many siblings she has, but she had a sister named Mary. And I think, so it sounded like a pretty actually... Pretty hard childhood in that sense. Your dad's gone, your sister's sick, you and your mom together moving all over the place, doing the best you can. And then, of course, she finds this guy who's a sexual predator hmm. and marries him. I just pulled up a picture of Hubert Bland. Man, right? But does he look like you'd want Hubert Bland to look like? He's glowering through a monocle in this <laughs> picture. He's got a mustache. He's got kind of poofy he, yeah uh, it's sort something. of hair like cogsworth the clock and i the know Disney thing a very i know it's nuts evil aristocrat kind of look it's i love it yep. if you remember one thing from this podcast remember hubert bland he sounds like a real character and yes it says he was an infamous libertine and where was this quote aposia by nature was something more than a philanderer by habit said the oxford dictionary anyway <laughs> What baggage? I brought no baggage. I was familiar with the name Edith Nesbitt, and I think familiar with her as a touch point for people like Diana Wynne Jones or J.K. Rowling, or you know, like British fantasists. Particular seem to enjoy her and grow up with her. And but you said you had read a horror story of hers or something. I think so, but I wouldn't have. You wouldn't have associated that. I wouldn't have noted. I wouldn't have been like, oh, Edith Nesbitt. Okay, now I understand Edith Nesbitt. She just would have appeared in an anthology of lots of people's work. I I can't remember how I first came across her. I might have been given some of her books for Christmas as a little kid. But I was the kind of kid who would walk through the library shelves like row by row 
looking for any cover or title that sounded interesting and that looked like it was fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I found quite a few fun or good things that way. I don't. I couldn't say for sure that I found her that way. I feel like someone gave me something by her. Like I feel like five children and it was a gift, and then I went from there. That's probably true. I don't really know. So I read some of this stuff early on. I read several books early on. I read a weird children's fantasy by her that I think I'd feel kind of uncomfortable with called The Enchanted Castle. It's later. And it is basically a lament over the loss of mythology. Hmm. Or what it reads like is like, oh, man, if only the Greek myths were really true because no one believes they're true. And we've lost them. and But they still kind of live on in this sort of literary fantasy type way in our hearts. It just has a... It's strange. Yeah. It's strange. It's probably... It's probably masterful, but it's strange. It's not... Five Children and It is more fun. So I've read several of her books. I haven't... I can't... There's a lot I'd forgotten about this one. I know I've read at least the second book in the Samiad series. I may have read The Story of the Amulet, which is book three. I've read The Book of Dragons. I think I've read Railway Children, Once Upon a Time. Um, and do you like them all as much as this one, or is this one special? No, I think, I think that I do. I think that I do. I think that she's, if you like what she's doing, you're going to like the rest of what she's doing. Because she is, I'd say, a pretty excellent prose writer. Mm-hmm. She's very clean, very crisp. She's witty. She's a good observer of character. She likes a certain kind of peril, and I think it's I think it's fun. Yeah, I would. Well, we're getting into our take. I know. Yep. Us. Sorry. I agree. All right. Uh, this book was fun. I don't know that I have a ton of things to say about it. If you like me, have a love hate relationship. Well, no, that's not true. I have a love relationship when it's done well. Well. What am I trying to say? What do I actually think here? I, I guess I love it. I guess I just love it. Usually. Love huh. what? I don't know. I'm just going to sit here thinking love. on mic well, without telling you what I'm thinking about. Yeah. So <laughs> she, she, has, she does the thing, which in the wrong hands can be quite annoying, but I always enjoy it when it's done well. I always enjoyed it when C.S. Lewis did it or when Tolkien did it in The Hobbit, which is where the author addresses the reader mm-hmm. directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And says, now you may be thinking blah, 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 or now obviously you wouldn't cry, or now, <laughs> you know, uh, courtesy right. demands that I don't tell you what happened here, uh-huh. or like that sort of yeah. very cute, arch, very arch, cutesy kind of thing. I think I like it when any great British fantasist does it, and I hate it when a modern person who's read probably C.S. Lewis tries to do it. Like it can, yeah. it can be very annoying when it's done mm-hmm. poorly. But as a kid, I almost always... Loved it. I really mourned Tolkien abandoning that more hmm. avuncular tone in the Lord of the Rings because I read The Hobbit first as a kid and I loved how he would stop himself. Now, what is The Hobbit? I, I suppose you probably don't know. Let me tell you that sort of thing I always <laughs> liked. In general, I'm very much in favor of artists drawing attention to themselves. I think the whole idea of the artist needs to be invisible is kind of bogus. You know, a Stanley Kubrick or some somebody who's like, look at this shot in my movie. I, I, <laughs> I tend to like that kind of thing more than I don't like that kind of thing. Yeah. So I liked that. She is 
witty. There are just fun little lines like there there is nothing like wings for getting you into trouble. But on the other hand, if you are in trouble, there's nothing like wings for getting you out of it. Little aphorisms like that. That's fun. They chose in haste and were happy at leisure, stuff like that. Um, (laughs) And so she's witty. She's fun. I didn't find myself like amazingly investing in this story or like deeply caring. Like I, I have to turn these pages in some ways it's the slightest of anything we've read or the the most mm-hmm. just a trifle but mm-hmm. it's a fun trifle yeah i would say i w- yeah it's not as much of a page turner as even like wonderful wizard of oz right but on the other hand it's better literature yes i would agree with that it's better written it's more it's better constructed this might be the thing that of all the books we've read which we've only done three so far i guess but yeah. three or four but I would be maybe most excited to give this to my kids when they're at a reading age just because I could see them, I could see a kid really just enjoying reading one chapter before bed and just enjoying the adventures and the fantasy Mm -hmm. of, you know. The premise of the book is that the kids find a fairy basically that can grant them wishes and then they sort of do the classic Faustian bargain thing where they make wishes and then the wishes backfire or come true in the wrong way they wish that they could live in a castle and suddenly the castle is besieged they wish that they could have wings and then they end up the wings the wishes go away at the at end sunset of, at sunset um and so they end up trapped on a roof of a spoilers chap- yeah sorry that's spoilers <laughs> but those are just a couple examples that's of right. the, the zany ways that these wishes don't work out and the well, trouble that they get into well what's fun and she's able to do this consistently is that she doesn't get them she gets them into predicaments through the fantasy of mm. here's a wish, but she doesn't really get them out that way. Right. But what happens is they decide, oh, I have wings. I can take this food. And then the wings go away. They're trapped. And they're like, I guess that was stealing. And now that person's going <laughs> to catch us for stealing. So they have to get out of it. And it, so there's always a character lesson right. in there. But it feels fair. And very lightly She's a light touch. It's, it's, not, it's light it's touch. Heavy Although heavy. what she's good at is making you feel ashamed. Right. <laughs> and I, in a way that I appreciate it. Yeah. Like, and I can see that being useful for a kid, just feeling like humiliated. Like, why are you making that choice? Like, that's a bad choice. And then instead of letting them get away with it, she like doubles down. No, she's like, no, they were dumb. And then, then they got caught. Right. Yeah. And then they had good, to say, sorry. Yeah. It's a good play along book. Like kids can imagine what they would do with wishes. That's they right. can imagine how they would get out of this or that scrape or what they would do if they had this or that power or special thing right. happening. Yeah. Um, and the kids are allowed to be clever in some ways, mm-hmm. but also stupid in others. The kids are well-drawn and well-observed and fun to yeah. hang out with. They, yeah, they actually are. It's, it's four siblings, and then their baby brother sometimes comes along. But they are really, they really work. It's like, oh, this lady knows kid dynamics. Like, she... Every character is shaded just enough. So that's the older brother. That's the older sister. Here's the younger brother. He's more of a punk. The younger sister is a little more of a baby. But it's just right. It's a, it's a good job. It's, there's an economy to the way that she draws the characters and the way that they express themselves in dialogue, which I was... I don't think it's just because I, I was listening on audiobook. I had a really good reader mm-hmm. who did the perfect shading in the way that she played the characters. I don't think it's just because of her. But maybe if... I read it, I would be like, eh. But yeah. no, it seemed like she, Nesbitt was just good at that kind of thing. She's good at that kind of thing. She's good at, I, I have a love-hate relationship. Another thing I have a love-hate relationship with is Monkey's Paw style stories and yeah. or Faustian bargain stories because 
oftentimes it's, and I grew up on the twilight zone and stuff. It's just so predictable. Like, mm-hmm. uh, don't wish for that. You're going <laughs> to, don't wish for money. Your relative's going to die and the life insurance will come through. You know? <laughs> don't, but she has a pretty fun angle on how each of these wishes can spiral out of control and go wrong. Oftentimes it's not exactly what you're expecting. Probably my favorite one, spo- I don't want to spoil all the things, but a really fun one is, I don't remember exactly what the wish is. There's a lot of wishes where the kids accidentally accidentally wish, <laughs> which is fun. But they they end up wishing that their baby brother would grow up, and then he becomes this intolerable dandy <laughs> <laughs> because he's suddenly been launched into adulthood without any of the conflicts or he's trials or spoiled. discipline. So he's just like he wants to go to town and find ladies and stuff like that. And <laughs> it's, it's quite funny the way that he's drawn. And <laughs> it is funny their irritation with him, and then it mostly becomes a game of them puncturing his bicycle tires so that he can't actually make it to town and spend a bunch of money and get into a bunch of licentious <laughs> trouble. Yeah, so there's just some there's fun stuff like that. And the individual people that they meet who are the foils for their adventures, the different characters in town that they meet or the people that are yeah, surprised by them, the random guy that sees sees them fly and decides that he's going to reform his entire life and then does <laughs> successfully. It's <laughs> <That's> really funny. <laughs> there's just a lot of funny little character char- yeah. character character portraiture. Right. That was all fun. The Sand Fairy himself, the Samiad, is quite fun yes, as a yes. character. He's sort of grumpy and I don't know what else you would say about him. He's grumpy. He's he's sort of wise. Yeah. But he's not he doesn't much like the children. And that's he's, quite fun. He's not a sentimentalist and he's sort of disgust he's been granting wishes now for thousands of years and he's just constantly disappointed and disgusted by what people actually wish for and and you don't get the feeling that he's intentionally teaching them lessons or making things go wrong. It's just genuinely be careful what you wish for. But it's but all that stuff is handled with a light touch. I, I feel like when we say be careful what you wish for, when I say that, it sounds like more of a kind of annoying moralistic fable than. Yeah. It does not just feel like each chapter they wish for something and then they learn a valuable lesson. And no. you know, it does broadly follow that formula. But. More in the sense that the character of the children is com- is continually exposed to their stupidity, their lack of wisdom. Yes. So, no, it's fun. I think I really wish I could remember the sequels now, but I am interested enough to go back to them. Yeah. And, yeah, I just, I guess I can't remember anything. So I have nothing to say about those. I would be interested to read them too. I would be interested to read more of this lady. She's a talented lady. And you you can definitely see, you can feel how even the tone you were talking about, the I'm the author, I'm going to comment on this humorously perhaps, and make a joke of it, breaking this fourth wall. That is, let's see. Yeah, so she's she's upstream of like Lewis and Tolkien. Yeah, it feels like they're both doing this, but actually because you don't, right. you don't see that as much in like a Lewis Carroll or some of the other no. early children's fantasists that no. would have been popular at the time. J.M. Barry, I don't think exactly does it, although he's very weird in the way that he describes things. He, yeah, um, I remember that. Same things, same, same thing for Milne, same thing for a lot of, but yeah, Nesbitt is light and humorous in a way that pretty clearly appealed to both Lewis and Tolkien, I would say. It's those thumbprints are on The Hobbit and on the early Narnia books, or maybe all the Narnia books. Yeah, she's fun. There's something else I was going to say about it, but I don't remember what it was. Maybe it'll come back to me. I wish, I wish it would come back to me.
Oh, I think I was going to say she has clearly also been influential just in the melding of real life and fantasy, just Mm -hmm. the the humorous kind of interaction of even just the first couple chapters of Harry Potter, you know, the first book, the sort of Dursleys are trying to go about their business and Mm -hmm. Harry's being assaulted by Al male and stuff like that. It it feels very in the grand tradition of this and kind of Mm -hmm. the the humor of... (laughs) buffoonish everyday Londoners or Englanders or whatever they are, slightly uptight, repressed British people trying to go Mm -hmm. about their business while these crazy things are happening around them. Mm -hmm. She has a good line in that, and it's a lot of fun. And, yeah, pretty clearly influential for people like Diana Wynne-Jones or... Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, she's good. It'll be interesting to see when we get in a... few weeks i guess to edward eager how we like eager's brand of eager's not at all hiding anything he's like i like this kind of story i'm doing it now mm-hmm. i'm just doing i'm doing the same thing now he's not 100 percent the same as nesbitt but right. he's the plot of half magic is five siblings or is it four i don't remember they find a magical thing and they make wishes that go comically wrong that is the plot of his first book right so he's, but he's not at all ashamed of that. And he, anyway, we'll just, it'll just be interesting. See if there's anything else to say about it or if it's just like, this is that thing. Yep. And will it be done better or more poorly or? Yeah. I don't know. Never read it. I think that's all I got. Anything else to say about mm-hmm. this book? It's delightful, but it's not the kind of delightful that invites real serious critical analysis, I wouldn't think. No, I don't think so. It's just. It is what we said. It's charming. If you read it to your kids, I bet they would really enjoy it. Yeah. There's parts that will probably make you laugh because they're funny enough. And then there's things that are pretty sweet. And there's a lot of, I don't know. I think the only other thing to say is that for all of her brokenness and kind of the horror of the marriage she chose. And I don't know if Nesbitt herself had any affairs. I didn't read that she did, but I didn't research her that deeply. So. Anyway, for all of that, there is a kind of, there's a kind of like family health Mm -hmm. to what she's describing that I was like, oh, huh. Yeah, I wish my sister and I had been more like this growing up (laughs) instead of what we were at each other's throats sometimes. So there is something to aspire to, even though Nesbitt was a broken person and if not debauched herself, then married to quite a debauched person and not a Christian, of course. There is something that she gives through the ages that's like, oh, yeah, I hope my kids can grow up to be like these siblings. Yeah, it's a sweet portrait of sibling relationships without it all being saccharine, very, very true to life. Mostly uh, some of some of what you're describing is achieved through keeping the parents off stage yep. for most of the story. And I don't, know, right. I don't know whether that's just this book or other books, too. But but yeah, she has a good line in family dynamics, a lot of observed comedic behavior that I'm sure people with siblings and with warm relationships with their siblings will recognize. Yep. All right. How many wishing fairies out of 900 do you give to this book? I feel like giving it close to 900. I'll I'll just give it 900. I mean, for what it is, it's kind of perfect. Yeah. I don't know. I don't have anything else. I don't have any criticisms really. Yeah. It's great. I don't think it, I don't think it aspires. Uh, My taste runs more towards probably both of the other two books that we've done mm-hmm. at this point in my life for whatever reason. But like I said, I could have, I could really imagine a child's taste actually running this direction. Mm-hmm. And I could imagine if I'd read this book at the right age, wanting to read all of her other books, it's great. 
Support this podcast at patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity. You can go on our Discord and tell your tell us all your thoughts about children's fantasy literature and other things that we talk about in the past and we'll talk about it in the future <laughs> on the great podcast sound of sanity until next time Ben is typing. He's trying to find a quote or something to say. It's taking him a long time. This is a slow old computer. (laughs) He's on a slow old computer. That is why you fail. All right. I'm ready. All right. Until next time. Don't you know a sand fairy when you see one?